Hebrews 6, 9 through 20. And this is uh, a part two of last week's sermon. Uh, last week's sermon is called the, the Anchor Part 1. This is called the Anchor Part 2. It's a continuation of that discussion. Um, and if you didn't catch that, go on YouTube and, and check it out um, so you know what we're, where, we're, where we're at. Jesus, I want to thank you for this family, whether they're here or at home watching or watching later, I thank you that um, though it is ideal and wonderful and nice to have us all together under the same roof, that's the best case scenario, I want to thank you that we also are together because we're in you. We're together in Christ and we're sharing this life together and we're, we're bearing each other's burdens the way you've taught us to by your own example and um, I pray for more of that. I pray for more health to be infused into our church in that way. Um, and I just want to thank you for these friends, this family. Um, it's so precious. And so uh, thank you for getting us through, getting us thus far. Thank you for getting us here this week. And I pray that you'd speak to us, Lord. We've sung to you. We've prayed to you. We've laid ourselves before you. Lord, we are now wanting to listen and put our hearts in a place where we can listen to what you have to say through your scripture. I pray that you guide us through it. In Jesus' name, amen. This is Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 through 20. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He won't forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want, to become, want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised to them. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give, and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did that so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Uh, this scripture calls our hope um, or likens our hope as an anchor for the soul. And um, I love this scripture because it's on the heels of what we studied last week, which is a, which at face value, the scripture that we studied last week can be a very unsettling, fearful scripture. And yet, right away, he's talking about something that's secure, that's stable, that's something that's meant to stabilize us, not meant to shake us, not meant to make us unstable, but actually to make us more stable. Uh, if you've ever been, a, if you've ever studied history, um, one of the things that you might realize is that, believe it or not, things were actually more stable in a lot of ways than they are today throughout history. Stability um, is very hard to come by for us these days. It's really tough. There, and there are a lot of technological and sociological reasons for this and a pandemic that's hit that has something to do with that as well and that we could get into. But one of the very few things that you can be sure of is that there's not very many things that you can be sure of. The fact is that most people in most times and even people today to a certain extent in other cultures and other parts of the world, um, the fact is that most people could count on living in roughly the same place for most of their lives. Um, travel was not easy uh, or feasible for most people, and therefore people basically didn't go far. It created more stability. Therefore, uh, people could count on knowing roughly, also knowing roughly the same people for most of their lives. 
community was stronger because you weren't leaving. You were sticking with each other. People could count on, by the way, this is history, people could count on roughly working in the same field or for the same job for most of their lives. And typically, in other cultures and throughout history, people believed in the same things for most of their lives. Their belief systems didn't change much for most of their lives. Today, of course, especially in the West, we can't count on any of those things. And there's major, you know, there's major debates about this. You'll read, you can read lots of articles about this. You can do a, a basic Google search about this. And um, everybody's got their opinions and there's facts and demographics and all of these types of things. But the point is, everyone at least recognizes a lack of stability in the midst of a very modern, affluent, cultured, diverse society. And it's making us scratch our heads. Why? We have more access to more things and more benefits and more of this and more of that, and yet we're more and more and more and more unstable. So here's a fact. When you get into highly unstable environments or when a vessel, I should put it this way, when a vessel has to navigate through a highly unstable environment, it must have strong stabilizers, an anchor in this case, in this analogy. Airplanes and ships have strong stabilizers to counteract the turbulence that comes in the air or on, the, or on water. The more the turbulence, the more important to have robust, strong stabilizers. On airplanes, I think it's the rear fin that, that um, is the biggest stabilizer. I think the vertical fin helps it from going left to right. The horizontal helps it from going up and down. Um, or a ship has an anchor to stabilize it, especially important in a big storm. The more the turbulence in the external environment, the stronger the storm, the stronger and more effective the stabilizers of that vessel have got to be. And so following this analogy, in my mind, that would mean that, in my mind, there has never been a time or place like here and now, the modern Western secular world, in which people need deep, strong and more effective internal stabilizers than right now. I really, I honestly really believe that. I don't know if there's, a, uh, if there's another time in history where we needed, as a society, strong internal stabilizers. See, most people, most places, and in most times did not have to face what we're facing um, because there were all sorts of external props that kept external turbulence at bay or kept it down. Most people li lived and still live in traditional societies where there's lots of stasis. There's lots of stability. Um, for example, you didn't have to think uh, much for yourself about the big questions in life because those answers were given to you and told to you. People told you the answers to those things and what you have to think. You didn't have all kinds of, you didn't have to have all kinds of tremendous internal disciplines like, uh, like thought and spirit, strong thought and spirit like you do today in order to be a person of great peace and stability. But today you do. Today you do, especially here. You and I facing this world as it is today we have to have far more incredibly effective internal stabilization than our ancestors had to in, in a lot of different ways. We have to retool because we're facing different things and in some ways, harder things. 40 or 50 years ago, people had the principles they had because they were told to have those principles and that was enough. That worked. It does not work anymore. And this is a, um, this is a call to to us parents as well. We are facing a time where our kids at some point will have to think of it for themselves. That's gonna happen. I spent 17 years working with teenagers and at some point they will, no matter how perfect your family or structure or system is, they will, especially in Seattle, they will have to figure it out for themselves. You just, by you just telling them it will not be enough it's at some point, okay? You have to have tremendous critical thinking skills and discipline of spirit to survive this kind of a culture, to stabilize you. Tremendous ones. Uh, 
A lot of times we blame, we blame our instability on externals. If I just lived in a different town, or if my spouse would just get his or her act together, or if only I made more money. But what if the problem is really internal? What if no matter where you went or who you were married to or what happened, you'd have to take yourself wherever you go? And what, and what if the problem is more internal? What if your spouse is not the problem? Oh, they have problems. I know that. I get that. But what if they're not the problem? Or what if your, your job or your boss or your employees or demographics are not the problem? What if the problem is what's going on inside your heart and your mind, processes that you've learned to look at the world and look at yourself through? Maybe our problems are not our circumstances, but that we're, we're vessels with inadequate stabilizers. We've lost our resilience as a culture. And we'll get into all that uh, in a little bit. The writer to the Hebrews tells us that in this passage. They are, the, the people that he's writing to also, as we've talked, has had very unstable lives at this point. There was tremendous turbulence for Christians in those days um, and at that point in history. And last, last time, last week, we were in Hebrews. We studied one of the more controversial passages of this book, because he was warning them not to fall away, not just, to, not just warning them not to fall, but warning them not to fall away. Very intense language. They were in danger of making some kind of a departure in their heart and their mind away from Jesus. They were sinking into this danger. So the writer to the Hebrews, knowing that he had just delivered this strong warning, and rightfully so, we've had lots of discussions already about last week's passage. Um, it's a, it, it gets us stirred up. But in the middle of that, he tells them not to give up in light of the dangers. He says, don't quit, don't get lazy, don't back off, don't compromise. That's been one kind of beating drum throughout the, this whole series. Don't give up, hold fast, don't back down, keep advancing, hold the line. Why? Because uh, I think he's smart, obviously. <laughs> I think he knows that he can't change the externals, can he? The writer of the Hebrews, he can't promise that the Roman Empire will get better at some point. He can't do that. Or that their life as Christians will get better or easier because it may not. And that's what makes the gospel so robust and so different than, what our, than the advice our culture gives, gives to get through hard times. Our culture will say something like, well, just get more educated or uh, advance in, in, in the classes, you know, earn more money, move to a different neighborhood where there's better schools and all of those types of things. Learn more. That will increase. And the Bible would say that is so reductionist. There's something much deeper going on in the human soul that needs to be addressed. There's, externals won't only do it. They're not the only thing to think about. There's internal stabilization because the, the reality is um, we can't guarantee that our society will stay the way it is. I've been um, reading recently a lot of uh, uh, secular psychology and what, what they would, um, especially in how to get out of unwanted behaviors. And one of the, one, there's lots of advice that, that that stream of thought will give, but one of the, stream, one of the advice is that they'll say, if, you know, if you're, not, if, you're not in a, in a, if you're not in a good job, get a better job. And they would say, and maybe it's your partner. If you're not congruent with your partner, maybe it's time to get a better partner to be the healthiest version of yourself. And I just think to myself, how, uh, what a privileged piece of advice. <laughs> that only works in America. You take that advice to Africa, or someplace like that, they would say, or take it back in time to the 1800s to the slave trade and just tell a, a black slave, you know what you need? You need an education. You need to advance in your, job, in your job. That would give hopelessness and it would be, quite frankly, um, insulting and abusive to give that kind of advice. They're stuck. And that's what makes the Bible so much better. It's an anchor. It gives, it gives us tremendous internal strength that transcends externals. So this passage, we're just going to see two things. One, 
We're going to talk about this internal stabilizer, that it's a reliable promise. And secondly, that it's transcendent. Those are the two things we're going to cover. First, let's look at the promise itself. It's quoted in verse 13. He's, this is uh, where it says, When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, and here's the promise, I will surely bless you, Abraham, and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Um, with this, he's drawing our minds to Genesis chapter 22 and even before that, Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 2, he had reiterated or repeated a promise that he had made in times before to Abraham, starting with, with Genesis chapter 12, and that is that through Abraham's son Isaac, the entire world is going to be blessed. So first of all, side note, I want to show you how particular and universal the Bible is. The Bible would say, through a favored, privileged, particularly blessed family, or one man, or even one nation, Israel, I, through a particular blessed family, I am going to bless the entire world universally. So it's both. I just want to point that structure out in the Bible, because um, it should perk your ears in a lot of the discussions of what's going on in our culture today. But the Bible is both. I'm going to bless everyone through one. I'm going to choose someone. I'm going to favor someone so that I can favor everyone, the Bible would say. That is the promise. Um, and you can go back to the original in Genesis 12, where it first happened. It, um, it says this, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. In our postmodern world, we do not like that, favoring somebody else. But look it. He keeps going. He says, and or so that you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In other words, through you, I'm going to bring everyone back to Eden. I'm going to bring everyone back to what it was originally meant to be. We all crave blessing. We were meant for it. It's in our uh, DNA. We crave favor. And in the Bible, that word favor means God's welcome. We crave his attention, his affection, and his affirmation. Everyone does. That's, that's what it means. To, that's anthropological. That's what it means to be human. We crave blessing. And that's why we become psychologically unhealthy when we feel that we don't have it or when someone withholds it from us or when a parent says, I'm not going to bless you. I kind of regret having you around. That messes and breaks things in our heads because we were designed to have blessing. Favor, belonging, purpose. That's what we were made for. And God recognizing that saying, says, the world's broken, but Abraham through you, I'm gonna fix it. I'm gonna bring the whole world back to, back to harmony and back to my blessing. Through Isaac would come a nation and from that nation would come one savior and that savior would save the whole world. The book of Galatians says that God preached the gospel to Abraham in that sense. That's a direct quote, that God preached the gospel to Abraham. In other words, God not, might not have said the word Jesus to Abraham, but God was saying that the world couldn't save itself and needed an outside savior to come and save it, and that God was going to do that through Abraham. And that was the promise that we've inherited, according to verse 17, that promise is, is as much ours today, you can own that promise for you. That promise is as much ours today as it was to Abraham because what our text says, we've inherited that hope. We've inherited that promise. In our world, the idea of a promise is extremely weak. It's a very weak idea. Here, and the reason I need to juxtapose this is because here our text says a promise is our hope, which is the anchor that stabilizes our soul. That loses its power on us because in our world, a promise isn't, isn't it's kind of a, we speak in hyperbole as a culture, you know? I'm super this. 
I so want this. It's the greatest thing I've ever seen, right? When it's really not, we just say that. That's just the way we talk. You go to any other country, they will say that to you. I was, uh, when I visited, uh, I don't remember where, some other, Germany, yes, yes, because Dave was there. They would say, we always know Americans. Why? And they said, because they always speak in extremes. That was the best food I've ever had. That was so good. I'm super into that. They said, you guys always do that. And I said, always? Sounds like you do too. But um, it's true. We, in our culture, we speak like that. So it's kind of, um, when, someone, when we say our hope is built on a promise, it kind of loses its, we, its thing to us. In our world, the idea of a promise is very weak, but in ancient times, the very security of society itself literally demanded that people speak truth to one another and live what they say. It demanded it. There was no judicial system in place, no accountability other than the word of the person that was making the promise. So truth was, in that sense, even more crucial than it is for us today. Because we have systems in place banking on dishonesty. (laughs) Today, if someone tells a lie or isn't trustworthy, there are legal ramifications for that. There are financial penalties to ensure the safety of the offended party. We we have it built in. We have a society based on the suspicion of distrust. And in a sense, that's made um, the value of one's word very cheap in our society. Think of, well, I mean, you probably already are. Think of presidential elections and all the promises, all the promises that are made. All the, I mean, it doesn't matter who it is. They make these bold promises, and I just find myself going, mm-hmm. Um, listen to um, this prophecy of theology and ethics at Fuller, Fuller Seminary, Lewis Smeads. I, I found this little excerpt from him. He says this. He says, imagine a society in which no one trusted one another to keep a promise. Imagine a society in which every leader was expected to lie as a matter of course. In which every teacher was suspected an academic cheat and every preacher a moral fraud. A society in which contracts were never expected to be honored. No partner could ever bank on the loyalty of another. No one could could make decisions in assurance of having the facts in hand. Life would be brutalized without trust we, exchange, we, we change from a community to a pack, from a society to a gang. Do you see what Smeads is saying? He's saying that truth has the, ability, has the ability to build up a community and make it secure, and falsehood has the power to rip it down and destroy it just by the power of our words. Some philosophers in, in linguistics are onto this. They will tell you that uh, words have the power to literally create realities. I'm sure Vero in her field of study is familiar, is familiar with this. This is known as the speech act theory, which states that words don't just carry information, but they carry out the power of action. In other words, our words can create dependable realities in the world actual realities in the world, or they can, they can create realities that are fundamentally unreliable and undependable. The fact is that words can create things that strengthen communities and societies, families, marriages, relationships, or words can create things that are destructive and violating to communities and societies and marriages and friendships and relationships. Words build up communities or they dismantle them. What you say has that kind of power. That's why James, I think, makes such a big deal in his, in his letter about the power of the tongue. Goes back to the beginning where God spoke ex nihilo, out of nothing. He spoke it into existence. In the original uh, Hebrew language, some would suggest that God sang it into into existence. 
Speech functions to create the reality that we live on as a society. For example, let's say someone tells you that they're going to be somewhere at a certain time. Let's say five o'clock, but they're late, and they're late for no good reason. You know, they didn't run into traffic. Um, you know, there was no emergency. They were late just because they forgot or because they decided to be late. They decided to do something else. Here's what's, here's what's interesting about that, if you think this through. Not only do you lose a little bit more ability to trust that person, but here's what science shows. We also lose our ability to trust, period, to trust in general. In other words, we don't just get jaded to that person. We do, that's true. But also we become jaded in how we look at life. That's, science has actually shown this now. It breaks down the way we think. But when people are trustworthy and people of their word, when people are consistent between their speech and their practice, this creates a world that is reliable, trustworthy, safe, stable, predictable, one that we can flourish in because we have clear boundaries. This principle is, is true of any community, any relationship, any family. And this principle was at work in ancient times too. There were dishonest people, by the way, in ancient times too. I don't want to, uh, I mean, sin was there too. So society used oaths. That's what this is talking about. It used oaths to strengthen the, real, the reliability of the promise. You know, they would, they would swear by something to kind of add an extra amount of uh, strength to what they said. Often they would swear by something revered or sacred. You know, I swear by the temple, they would say type of thing. I swear by the tabernacle. Other times, they'd swear by an authority figure, like a reigning monarch. I swear by, the, by David's throne, they would say. By the throne of King David, I swear by this. Or they would even swear by God that they would fulfill their promise. And an oath was seen as something that was binding on them. So they didn't, this isn't, they wouldn't, you know, we throw out oaths like, like you know, we just throw them out there. I swear. I swear to God. I, I swear it's true. We just kind of throw it. For them, in that culture, you said that, people were like, oh, oh dang. They just took this to the next level. This is binding on them now, right? And an oath was seen as something binding. In other words, they, there was grave consequences if that promise was broken after an oath was added to it. Politically speaking, just in a political way, because the name of something holy was bound up in the promise or oath or the character of the reigning king, it was then in the best interest of the king politically to punish a broken promise that was, that was said in his name because he wanted to separate himself um, from that kind of character. He didn't want to be associated with that character, so he would come out strong against it. If someone said, in the name of David, and they broke it, he would act, because that's my name you put on that. It used to mean so much more to put your name on something. If you break a promise in the name of the king, Mike, the king would say, I'm going to punish you because I don't want my name attached to your behavior. In ancient times, those who broke a promise that they swore an oath by suffered the same fate, and here's where we get into our text, why this is relevant. They suffered the same fate as an animal sacrifice. Did you know that? So in fact, a common practice in making an oath was to cut an animal in half in ancient times and walk between the halves of this dead animal while making your promise. That's what they would do. And what they were saying was, if I don't keep this promise, I deserve the same fate as this animal. I'm putting, I'm, you know, all in. I'm putting my life on my word right now. That's what that meant. Well, God gave us a promise through Abraham and also strengthened it with this oath. There's no one greater than him to swear by with him, from, than himself. And he did this so that we would know that we could know that his promise was reliable. He went through all of this. Do you remember when the, when the, when the promise was given to Abraham and this deep sleep comes over Abraham? First, well, first God tells Abraham to cut an animal in half. He's, this is all talking about the promise. God gives him a promise. Abraham, I'm gonna, you're going to have kids, even in your old age, and I'm going to bless the whole world. And Abraham basically says, how do I know? 
In other words, we're having a transaction here. How do I know? And God says, okay, set it up. Let's make a contract. Sacrifice an animal. And so Abraham does. He cuts that thing in half. And, you know, he's trying to flee, uh, get the buzzards away from it. A deep sleep comes over him. He's expecting that usually parties would walk between it together. I'll, I'll, I'll do my half of the bargain. You do yours. Instead, he comes over a deep sleep and he dreams this presence of God goes between himself. I'm swearing by myself, Abraham. I will pay this price to make this binding and reliable. That's what the, the writer to the Hebrews is talking about here. He's talking about a hope that's binding on God. Why? Because after he gives this warning, don't fall away, he's also trying to give them great stability. You've got a hope that is not easily or even possible to shake in your soul. Look at verse 17. It says, because God wanted to make the, here it is, L listen to all the words like stability. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. In other words, he wants his word to be stable. God did this so that by two, here's the word again, unchangeable things in which it is impossible, there's that same word we talked about last week, it's impossible for God to lie. We who have fled to take hold of this hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. Why? Why can you be greatly encouraged by this hope? Because it's stable, it's reliable. The key word in this passage that shows up twice, I already pointed it out, is unchanging or unchangeable. A better translation for this word would be immutable, which in this context means that it's impossible for God to change. Unchangeable equals stable. He's the same. The same promise that he gave to Abraham by his own word is the same promise that he gives to you today. Today, Jameson and I were talking about the transcendence of the word of God, how it's, it's, it's to all people, to all times, to all places, but how it was God's word to someone else first before it was God's word to us. And that's what this is talking about, an inheriting of an old ancient promise that you can have today that's for you too. And you can rely on it internally. It's stabilizing for you because God made an oath by himself and he paid the sacrifice. Imagine a promise so faithful that it literally has the power to change the fabric of the universe once it's given. Imagine that. Imagine the power of a promise given by someone who is so reliable that the promise is as good as done even though it hasn't been delivered yet. Would it, would it metaphysically change the fabric of, of the universe? I think it would, and I think it has. God is so faithful that when he swears to something or gives an oath, it literally changes and affects, affects things even before the promise is actually delivered because of the level of his faithfulness. Think of the life of Jesus. The power of Jesus' life comes from him living from the impl implications of the power of the cross, even though he hadn't gone to the cross yet. Did you know that that's where his power came from? When Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, Jesus was, you know what he was doing? He was accepting his mission. He was saying, I will do this. He was committed to it. An oath was given, you could say, through that baptism. And at that moment, it was as good as done. He had decided to go to the cross for mankind and therefore it was as good as done and that's why, he could, that's why he could heal people of disease before the cross because it was as good as done. The power of the cross could retro back because it was gonna happen. Think of that, the power in that. That's why he could proclaim that people's sins were forgiven before the cross, before he had died for them because it was as good as done. He could say, your sins are forgiven. The power of his word, the power of his oath, see? His word was so strong. The phrase greatly encouraged here in verse 18 is better translated a strong consolation. The cross is the only place that gives us strong consolation and yet that is what everyone is searching for, isn't it? 
That's why we're so unstable. We don't feel, we're searching for encouragement, consolation. Even last week, after talking about it's, poss- it's impossible to bring someone back to repentance, a lot of you were searching for consolation. What does that mean? Oh my gosh, I'm scared. Unstable, searching. We all need encouragement, consolation, stability. That's real. The cross is the only place that gives us strong consolation, period. And yet, that is what everyone is searching for. In fact, if you understand this concept, you you will understand all of human behavior and all of social history if you can understand this need for uh, consolation. The person who opens the bottle of alcohol and drinks too much is looking for some consolation. That's what they're doing. The person using pornography is looking for consolation. The person looking for value and some kind of achieved success is looking for stability and and consolation. Those seeking material prosperity, they're seeking control, stability, consolation. I'll be okay if. But only the cross. Where are we back? We're back to those externals, aren't we? Only the cross offers strong consolation that stabilizes the soul inwardly like an anchor. Whether you're in prison, in a concentration camp, or you're a slave, we have all these great examples. Christianity is filled with a rich history of great examples of people who did not just survive, but thrived in horrible situations. Why? They had internal stabilizers. They had an inward, internal anchor for their soul. Only the cross offers strong consolation that stabilizes the soul like an anchor. Why? Because the cross is not based on your end of the agreement. That is what the cross means. It's not based on how well you uphold your end of the bargain. That's exactly what makes this world so unstable. In fact, Jesus died the death of an animal sacrifice because the oath was broken. He died the death, the penalty of an animal sacrifice because the oath was broken by you and by me. That's what makes it so stable. On the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for one who has broken the oath, even though he's not the one that broke it. We have been... We're the unfaithful ones, you guys. That's where this comes down to. So he suffered the same fate as an animal would. That's what makes this so incredibly stable. If it were about your ability, if if we came to church and it was about your ability to, you know, pull yourself up and get out there and live the covenant life, you would not be stable. That would not be offering stability. On the other hand, this passage shows us that, in a sense, the gospel isn't culminated or fully played out yet. This is our point number two. The promise isn't only reliable, it's transcendent. Look at verse 19. It says, we have, an an- we, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul. It's firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf, and now he comes back to the subject he diverted from in chapter 5, he has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. He comes back. The phrase, inner sanctuary behind the curtain, and high priest forever in the order of uh, Melchizedek, that's heaven talk, that's heaven speak. There is something we, have you noticed, there's something we are still waiting for. Christians live in the in-between of the here and the not yet. The kingdom, we've talked about this around Easter time, the kingdom has been inaugurated. It is here and yet it is yet to be consummated. It will culminate at some point, but it's also here. So we live in this really weird place where we can be satisfied and yet want more. We can get our needs met and yet need more. That's that's a great description, I think, of life. Eating. You eat, you get full, and a few hours later, you want more. You need more. 
You go and hang out with some friends for some social inter- interaction, and you, it's so good. It feels so good to meet on Sunday morning and to be with all of our friends and to be with, or go to a home group or go to a friend's house. It's just, oh, I need it. It's like food for my soul. Then you stop, and then you're going to need more. I need to be with people again. I miss my family. Or people, folks that report that they're lonely even when they're surrounded by lots of people. We need more. When you order something online, this is a great way, we, in our Amazon world, when you order something online from Amazon, you've paid for it, right? It's yours. You own it, and yet you don't have it yet. It's yet to be delivered. It's both. And sometimes we as Christians, we act like we, we've completely futurized the kingdom on one extreme, We've said, oh, it's for later. Someday we'll be in heaven and all of this stuff will be better, right? And we just, and it has no bearing on the here and now. That's one extreme. Others have said the kingdom is all about here and now and they get frustrated when they come up against problems. Why isn't this working? How come there's still disease? Why do I still face these same sins and problems? How come I'm not getting over this? Why am I financially hurt? What's going on? Because they think the kingdom ought to be reigning and ruling right here and now. And the Bible would say, neither of those extremes, both. It is, yes, it is here. And you can get glimpses of the Lord and glimpses of his of a relationship with him. Is anybody, let me ask you this, even spiritually speaking, is anybody in here satisfied with your relationship with Jesus? No, why not? But, there's the but. There's always a but. Because we're still here. And a lot of us think, well, what am I doing wrong? Well, you probably are doing some things wrong. But a lot of it is just, it just is. It's the environment that we're in. It's the dispensation theologically that we're in. We live in the yes here. We get glimpses of the Lord. We have moments of sweetness with him. But then we have moments of, where are you, God? And I don't why, don't, why am I not inspired to get up and meet with you this morning like I was last, yesterday morning? How come I'm not as on fire today as I was yesterday at church? We, we notice this. This is common to man. Well, because what you're yearning for is the not yet. You can have something now, glimpses, pieces, beautiful things that are genuine and real and are really here. It has been delivered. It's been inaugurated, but you're yearning for it, the consummation of those things, the culmination of those things, the heaven. In heaven, you will have a radical, passionate relationship with Jesus Christ that you, you know you need to have and you, you long for. In heaven, you will. Until then, you'll get little tastes of it that'll be beautiful and refreshing and needful and real and genuine. Same with your relationships. In heaven, our community, our society will be perfect, life-giving. We will be naked and unashamed, so to speak, in front of each other. In other words, honesty, truth, our words will be honest. There'll be a strong, reliable society. No more abuse, no more hatred, no war, no pain. None of those, no manipulation and gaslighting. None of that. It'll be completely safe what you long for around a banqueting table celebrating the goodness of God. Until then, on Sunday mornings, you get a little taste of that. Or when you sit down to lunch with a good friend and you're eating and enjoying a good conversation, that's a little taste of that. It's real, it's here, it's genuine. But it's also not yet. You see what I'm saying? We don't go to either of those extremes. And this is a great explanation for the state of our world because we live in this funny place where it is paid for, it's done, to die. it is done, and yet, it has yet to culminate. This is really hopeful, I think, for those of us that struggle with really stubborn sins, habits. Maybe you've had some great victory, but it's still this thing you wrestle with, and occasionally it gets you. Please, Patiently endure with the promise that God has given you, the stabilizer that God has given you. Someday, my sin will not exist and His grace always will. Amen? Yes. Some of of you may be here feeling that God has promised you something and it's not yet delivered. 
children or being married or whatever it might be. Hang on. Wait. God will make good on that promise. And by the way, you, you single folks, you'll, I promise you this, you'll get married and you'll still go, hmm, this must not have been the marriage that he was promising. Because it's not. It's a taste of what's to come to the ultimate lover of your soul in heaven. These Christians were going through major instability and do you see what this writer is giving them? An anchor that's planted in heaven. Think about an anchor. An anchor's no good if you can see it. Right? An anchor's no good if you can see it. It's only useful when it's unseen, into the abyss, hanging on to something. If it's on the boat, it's not, it's not useful. But when it's gone into the depths of the ocean, it's being used. And the writer of this book is saying, our anchor is not on this boat, this life. It's planted in heaven. He gave them heaven for their hope, for their stability. The Bible says, and every other culture says, that the meaning of life is beyond this world. Did you know that? Now we're going to get back to some cultural discussion. Every other culture, including the Bible, says that hope is beyond this world. Whether it, this be heaven with God, escaping the cycle of reincarnation into eternal bliss, um, escaping the illusion of this world. We're talking about Buddhism now. The illusion of this world and going into the all-soul of the universe. That's uh, New Ageism. Or, or living, uh, living through your family and through your descendants. This is so tough for the modern culture, though. Because, honestly, the modern culture has no mechanism like this. This is so, because the Western culture says the meaning of life is to be free to choose what makes you happy in this life. That's what our culture says. It's the freedom to choose what makes you happy in this culture and in this life. And so in a, here's what that means. In a secular view, in, this, in Seattle, suffering can have no meaning. Pain, suffering can, is meaningless. It's what scares us the most. It's a very, very weak worldview. Christianity, on the other hand, allows us to be profoundly realistic and yet hopeful about suffering. It's profoundly realistic about suffering, Christianity is, because it says suffering is inevitable. It's going to happen. Profoundly realistic. The Bible is painfully matter-of-fact when it comes to suffering. And the writer of the Hebrews knows he can't change the externals. I have no power over the Roman government, all of that. But at the same time, the gospel is hopeful because it, it offers not merely a spiritual afterlife, but the hope of a renewed creation, of a renewed earth, of a renewed body. It talks about resurrection and the hope of a new material world without decay, without suffering, and without death. The Bible presents God's relationship to suffering. This is, blows my mind. The Bible's theology about suffering, it presents God's relationship to suffering as both stronger and weaker than any other religion. On the one hand, God is absolutely sovereign over suffering. It's never out of his control, the Bible would say. On the one hand. On the other hand, God has actually submitted himself to it. God has actually come into the world himself and suffered as one of us. You will find, I promise you, I've looked, I've studied it, you will find no other religion that offers a theology like that, a view of God and suffering like that. This is why Christians can be so hopeful and realistic all at the same time. It's a balance. We, on the one extreme, we don't say, well, it's just all about the afterlife. On the other extreme... We don't expect it all to be here because it transcends this life. It may sound simplistic and even cliche, but the reality is no matter what happens in this life, you're going to heaven. And that gives you tremendous strength. Think of whatever it is you're afraid of right now and then actually imagine it happening. The worst, whatever that worst would be, imagine if it, the unthinkable 
what you're hoping to never lose, you actually do lose it. Your family may abandon you, but your relationships will flourish in heaven, both with God and others. Your boss may fire you. That person might reject you. Your husband or your wife may divorce you or betray you. The doctor might say the word cancer. Your children may turn on you and go a path in life that you don't want them to go. But you are going to heaven where somehow all the wrongs will be made right. If that doesn't excite you, then heaven is not a reality that's taking place in the here and now. It's not retroing back into how you live right now. That's the power of the oath. He said it. It's as good as done. And the more you realize that and you come into that and you live in that, the more, the, the more power of it you can grab and, and apply to now. It's an unshakable hope, you guys. And boy, do we need it. Don't fall for this culture's thing. You just need this. And if you could just get this, and if you had a little bit more square footage, and if you just could move to this other town, or if you could do this, all these external things, you guys, the Bible would not dare abuse you like that. The Bible's way too realistic because they're not, they're, you may not get the promotion. You might get the square footage but be steeped in debt and then have other burdens. Your kids might go... The other way, you might get married and the guy's a jerk. Yeah, there's all sorts of things. The Bible would never say if you just could get married, single person, or if you could just marry somebody else, married, miserable married person, or if you could just get skinnier, if you could just get fatter, if you could just get this, if you could just get that. The Bible would never abuse you like that. It will say, hey, internally, you have a hope that's anchored in heaven, made by an oath that's as good as done. So strong and so stable. You guys, we gotta rest on that or we won't make it. This, this life will rip, us, will rip us apart. We'll be unstable. Amen? Amen. Amen.